Hi, my name is Chris, a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q, and you're listening to ML4Q&A. On this podcast, usually members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computing Cluster answer questions about their work in the cluster, their research and the future of quantum. But in today's episode, I'm not talking to an ML4Q member, but to our first external guest. Stephen Kester is a professor of nanotechnology in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Minnesota. Steve is joining us in his role as the director of the Global Quantum Leap Program, a network of networks, including ML4Q. We talk about his electrical engineering background and how he got a first taste of quantum devices during his master studies at Notre Dame. This eventually led to a PhD work on indium arsenide. He also gained industry experience working at IBM for 14 years, among other things on silicon germanium. Besides being a professor, he is also the director of the Minnesota Nano Center. But as the main topic, he introduces the Global Quantum Leap Program. The program aims to foster international collaboration and strengthen the link between the fields of nanofabrication and quantum information sciences on an international level. By financing undergraduate internships, ad hoc scientific exchanges and workshops, among other things, it will contribute to the global challenge of realizing a useful quantum computer. All right. It is my uh, pleasure to welcome Stephen J. Custer to the ML4Q podcast. Um, you are our first external guest, so it's really, it's really an honor. Um, and you come to us uh, from the US, which is even like, uh, I mean, we could have had external guests from Germany, but so this is really, really special. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, Steve wears many hats. Among other things, he's a, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Minnesota. Um, he's the director of the Minnesota uh, Nano Center and a director of the Global Quantum Leap Consortium. And that is mainly why you visit us, because this program has a partnership with ML4Q, right? That's right. And I'm actually here with uh, well, two students right now who are uh, doing an exchange uh, research project uh, at Hervé Teja. Indeed. So we should, we should uh, uh, later on, we will definitely talk a lot about uh, the Global Quantum Leap uh, uh, program. Um, how it works, how it relates to ML4Q and what the opportunities are that it brings, because I guess for some of so for some of the current people in ML4Q, they should also start thinking about it, right? Yes. Um, but let's first uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, about you. You're, um, I mean, now you're you're the director of a quantum program, but um, you um, studied electrical and engineering. You're not like a physicist by by training, right? I am not a physicist. That is correct. So um, we, we should we should definitely talk about your how, how you came to um, how you came to quantum physics. I mean, maybe that that's that's a good point point to start. So um, uh, how did you like what was your um, you, you st studied at Notre Dame, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I did my uh, master's at Notre Dame and then I went on to do my Ph.D. at UC Santa Barbara and actually at Notre Dame. I got at least a, a taste of quantum devices because at that time there was a group of uh, relatively young faculty that decided that they were going to do research on novel electronic devices whose uh, means of operation was some quantum mechanical principle. So, for instance, resonant tunneling diodes was one, and, and they just wanted to explore that device space Uh, as opposed to kind of the conventional transistors. Uh, and uh, I thought that was, was quite exciting. 
Yes, uh, indeed. Like, let's say indeed that the, the, this whole quantum uh, electronics um, that, that is is becoming a big subject in the in, in the early to mid eighties, I think. Right, like there's there's more the, the cryogenic technology becomes more and more available, so the quantum effects uh, uh, become more apparent, and then uh, indeed you run into things like quantized conductance, uh, uh, um, quantum Hall effect, uh, and things like that, where you can see that electrical conduction is actually quantized. That, that's right. That's right. So uh, in my PhD work, that's what I was working on, is uh, looking at quantized conductance in 3-5 uh, materials. It had already been the, uh, the, uh, the breakthrough work uh, that was done uh, at Delft, I believe, and, and in other places on observing qu quantized conductance in gallium arsenide. And so my PhD research was to uh, do the same thing, essentially, in indium arsenide, in indium arsenide aluminum and timonite quantum wells, taking advantage of the larger uh, energy spacings that you could get with the later effective mass of indium arsenide. All right. So indeed, these, these material systems, uh, indium arsenide, gallium arsenide, and aluminum gallium arsenide, they all form sort of a, 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 like a, a building, like a, a set of where you can, can, can play with these properties, right? That, that's right. Well, the um, gallium arsenide is, is lattice matched to aluminum arsenide, and you yep. can make these gallium arsenide, aluminum, gallium arsenide uh, heterostructures. Um, and, uh, but we were working on, so, so I was working with the, the group uh, of Herb Cromer. My, my advisor was Evelyn Hu, but uh, Herb Cromer's group were the people that grew material uh, <laughs> for me. And um, uh, they were working on the indium arsenide, gallium antimonide, aluminum antimonide material system, which creates much larger band offsets. So you can create really large uh, confinement for electrons. And then also indium arsenide has um, much lighter effective mass, about three times lighter effective mass than gallium arsenide. And the idea was that then you could create larger energy splittings of the, of the 1D quantized levels, possibly see uh, this quantized conductance at higher temperatures. And I thought that was interesting because maybe you could make a practical device out of it. And did, did that actually pan out? Yeah, we were able to see the quantized conductance maybe up to about 40 Kelvin or so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was, was better than oh, what, what, what had course. been done in gallium arsenide. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, it wasn't room temperature yeah. or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. Taking these effects. I mean, it's possible in some materials to take these effects to room temperature, I believe. But it's, it's very difficult and sort of a niche thing. Yeah, I think in things some of like some of these metallic brake junctions, they've seen uh, quantized conductance at room temperature. It's certainly possible. Yeah, exa uh, exactly. It's not it's not theoretically impossible. That's for sure. Yeah, it's just uh, uh, hard to do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And indeed, already going to liquid nitrogen would uh, make it much more applicable. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So um, we were still. I don't think we were turning all the, the knobs that you could have at the time, um, yeah. but uh, we were just at least taking advantage of the intrinsic material properties. So how, how was that for you? We've already um, discussed. So you, you had a, a normal electrical engineering education. Um, when did you uh, learn the sort of uh, uh, basics of why uh, conductance is quantized and so on? Uh, how, 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 is that, how is that process to, to live at the boundary between the, the fields? Well, I mean, I certainly had good teachers. Uh, I, I took uh, Herb Cromer's quantum mechanics class, which was interesting because he taught quantum mechanics for engineers. 
Yeah. So it was, it was very interesting, actually. He specifically designed a quantum mechanics course for engineers to maybe make it a little bit, a little bit easier, easier for us to, to handle and uh, uh, look at a little bit more practical applications. Uh, so, and of course, we learned about you know Landauer's uh, conductance formula, which isn't too it's hard not, to grasp. It's not you so know, difficult. It's, it's, yeah. it, you know, it's a simple transmission problem, and so. I think the physics, at least for me, was was easy enough to grasp, and you could you could get the basic concepts. Yeah, I I think it's always a, a very interesting space because, uh, for example, I work in these superconducting quantum circuits, and there, electrical engineering is really really useful. Like a good solid grasp of of, of many electrical engineering ideas, uh, really help. And I, I often feel like I, I would be probably better at this if I had like had some electrical engineering classes like yeah so that, that there's certainly um, uh, good reasons why for example in Aachen and, and other places there's more and more joint master's programs where um, where where people where people bring these things together I certainly think it helps to have that interaction between the physicists and the uh, and the electrical engineers uh, it certainly has benefited me yeah, and and I mean the work that you that you talked about for your PhD. Then already you have uh, cryogenics, which is one one skill, uh, uh, and it exactly like I guess you had to also like at the time it was even more manual, so people were still figuring out how to get the electron temperature down. Um, yeah, though I I did. Most of my work was just dipping into cryostat at, uh, at, at, at a doer. In yeah. fact, even dipping in a doer at 4.2. We did a little bit of work at lower temperatures, but not a whole lot. Okay. No, uh, that, that so, uh, but, but yeah, we, it certainly was a, a cross between nanofabrication and material growth. Lots of materials issues with, with indium arsenide, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. indeed. The, uh, I mean, the growth, uh, I guess you, did, you weren't the grower, but you did the fabrication. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I worked with uh, with uh, collaborators who who grew the material, um, but I did the the nanofabrication, the electron beam lithography, and things yeah. like that. So I, I mean that that is also I mean that it's hard to explain to people, but indeed material growth in itself is usually a PhD because you need like a year or two to get somewhat good at it, right? And that that's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, I think that I I got my PhD on. I think basically three wafers, three golden wafers uh, Which, were, yeah. were the ones that I just did my entire PhD on. So. Exactly. And somebody had to probably grow like 20 or something to to get to the right conditions. That's right. That's and, right. And, and they were doing their PhD on other things. They were they were actually doing uh, the, the collaborators that I worked with were, were Colombo Bolognese and, uh, and Bobby Brar. Uh, and they were both doing uh, transistors. So they were making room temperature devices with these materials. But then they would also on the side grow some of these high mobility uh, materials for me. Yeah. So that in, and, and then indeed, like on the one hand, you have these people who, who work with these uh, uh, growth machines, which is controlling temperatures, pressures and understanding things, how things go wrong, which is often <laughs> really hard. That's right. That's right. And and uh, um, the the indium arsenide aluminum and timonide material system was particularly complicated because in the heterostructure you're actually changing both the cation and the anion, uh, and this creates a lot of issues with how you engineer the interfaces and and things like that. So it was it was quite complex, and there were many PhD theses that were just built on the materials. And uh, yeah, and then but then you have people like you who then have to take one of these golden wafers and and fabricate on them. And I, I guess, like, you also didn't have really, really big pieces probably at the time, or 
or was it uh, t- two inch wafer? I, I, had, okay, I had a so two they, inch wafer. They were pretty big, actually. That's, that's yeah, that nice. I, I cut those up and I preserved them and so, <laughs> protected them with my life. Yeah. Yes. So, but indeed, you you like because well, for the fabrication, you have to sort of factor in that it's going to go wrong the first few times, or like, absolutely, yeah. Oh, there are many devices, and and the worst part is when you say you're almost at the end of your fabrication step and you drop a wafer. Or, yeah, or it's something heartbreaking. Like that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I, I like yeah. I also I, I think. Like there's these things where you sometimes you just screw a, a chip into a plate to, uh, uh, you know, to 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 clamp it or something, and then the chip breaks in the middle or, and and right through your your uh, contacts or something. Like it's fabrication is is something where you have to have a certain degree of 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 being able to take punishment. Like. Yeah, and, and particularly three five materials are very brittle. Uh, yeah, they they cleave very easily. <laughs> yeah. So no, indeed, I I I, I feel you. It's it's uh. And and nanofabrication at the time, I guess, was also a bit harder because you you still did like you didn't have a a, a machine like our current uh, uh, electron beam lithography machine where you just put a pattern in and the machine writes the pattern. Interestingly enough, uh, I actually used I be, uh, Santa Barbara had just obtained as a donation. Um, an electron beam lithography system called VS1, which I believe was the first generation of the IBM internally developed electron beam lithography systems. And this thing was extremely difficult to use, using very, very old IBM computers and things like that. Uh, But it actually served me quite well because uh, eventually I went to IBM and I used some of the same, uh, I I actually knew how to use some of this uh, kind of, very old software uh, to run these systems. So it was uh, actually benefited me uh, eventually. But yeah, so what, what we can, what we can uh, uh, take from this is that already in your, um, in your PhD, you worked a little bit at the interface of nanofabrication, quantum physics and electrical engineering. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And um, then uh, uh, you um, joined IBM, right? Or you did a brief... That's right. That's right. So um, unfortunately, I left uh, Santa Barbara after only four years. Uh, I should have tried to stay there longer, I suppose. Uh, such a nice place. But I, I then uh, left uh, 1995 and did a, a started as a postdoc uh, at, at IBM, working in their Silicon Germanium group, uh, and eventually went on to become a research staff member. Nice. And so essentially, you took like, how was it? Was a lot of the expertise that you uh, had from the uh, 3.5 materials uh, directly applicable or? Well, that's that was what was interesting is that I learned uh, there was a, um, I remember a talk from Khaled Ismail, who uh, was at IBM at the time, and he had come and give it, given a talk at Santa Barbara on these high mobility silicon, silicon germanium quantum wells. And eventually that's who I did my postdoc with uh, at, at IBM. And I just thought that was so cool that you could actually do, you know, a heterostructure in silicon. And and that that's really fascinating to me. And so I was really happy to go to uh, to go to IBM and start working on these materials. Ah, okay. So so the the magic of it part for you, some of the magic of it was just that silicon is the material that powers computers. Yeah, and it was such a such a cool technique that you create this uh, relaxed silicon germanium buffer layer and you strain the silicon, because I mean at, at at Santa Barbara we had always just thought that you can't do with this sort of stuff in silicon. You know, it was just really something exclusive to the three fives, and the fact that you could actually make these really high mobility channels in silicon, I thought was just really really interesting, and and 
to have the chance to work on it, I think was was really exciting. And indeed, like we can maybe briefly say, actually, some of this, uh, uh, um, in in a way, the quantum, the quantum dot world, uh, in particular, in in quantum computing, is sort of very interestingly following this uh, earlier developments. Like early on, you had gallium arsenide also um, for just two decks and 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 quantized conductance, and uh, uh, then sort of silicon following. And in the quantum dots, you also had the early work on on, on uh, gallium arsenide because everything is a bit bigger. That's right. Heterostructures are a bit better, maybe, and easier to make. And silicon sort of following up. Yeah, yeah, I I, I can see that. Yes. So it's actually quite interesting. Your so part of your personal path also uh, tracks this uh, uh, development that would later be taken by by uh, sort of the quantum community as well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that way. Yeah. Uh, so um, how was it like? So you you came from from a university PhD uh, working on sort of fundamental things on electronics, and 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 you joined uh, IBM on a project on silicon, which we all know is very important material for computer technology so what were the hopes at ibm at the time and how did your um how did like life as a researcher change uh from the university to the um company well my first two years at ibm i was a i was a postdoc and so there i got a chance to to I maybe pretend to be a physicist a little bit. Um, I got a chance to uh, to do low temperature experiments and and look at low temperature transport in these high mobility uh, strain silicon quantum wells. So we did things like look at uh, weak localization and uh, looking at spin and valley splitting uh, in these materials. Uh, and so that was fun. Um, but I think probably. Later on, I, I did want to try to look at more practical applications, and and so, and of course, at that same time, there was a big silicon germanium group at at IBM. Um, yeah. IBM had really been a big pioneer in trying to bring silicon germanium into production technology, originally for bipolar transistors, which actually at that time, or slightly before my time, they were looking at silicon germanium uh, to improve bipolar transistors. Were actually that were actually used in mainframes. They were actually doing logic with bipolar oh. transistors at that time. But there was also a group that was working at on these strange silicon quantum wells, eventually to create a high-mobility silicon channel to improve CMOS technology. Uh, so there was a lot of activity at that time on trying to explore the really the practical applications of silicon germanium. And uh, I was anxious to, to get into... Trying, trying to be a little bit more practical. What, at least. what was the promise compared to to uh, uh, CMOS? Um, so the the promise of of strain silicon. So this would be say a, a, a biaxially tensely strained silicon on relaxed silicon germanium is that um, it leads to higher mobility. And the higher mobility largely is is a breaking of the uh, of the, the the two and fourfold valley degeneracy in the in the conduction band. Yes, and the idea is that it's. Is like the higher mobility helps you because of temperature mostly, or what's what's the what's the like you want like is, is it switching? What what is the what is the angle? Is it switching time and t temperature or, or? Yeah, yeah. So you'll be able to get essentially uh, faster switching. Um, so uh, the you know, the 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 metric basically is usually CV over I, the capacitance times the, the voltage divided by the current. So you can get more current. You can your 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 transistors will switch faster. 
So um, indeed, making a faster transistor. Making a faster transistor. That's right. So so the, the logic switching you can run at higher clock speeds. Uh, th- this would be the idea, or yeah. you could trade that off to actually operate them at lower voltage, and you could get the same speed at lower power. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of. I mean, I'm a little bit out of my depth. Yeah, I'm 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 very much a physicist and not an expert on on computers. But I guess I mean the main things with computers is power consumption, uh, speed of of switching, and and sort of how small the transistors are and how well you can integrate them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so that, that speed and power tend to be traded off against each other. So it, it creates a, a better sort of power performance trade-off. What, what is the reason why CMOS is still dominating a lot of the technology? Is it, is it the fabrication? Is, is it ease of fabrication? Because indeed the mobility is not, um, it, like you can get materials with better mobility and better properties. Yes, uh, that's that's true. But for one, as you scale devices, uh, mobility matters a lot less. Um, so you know, when, when you're down to a, a device that has a 20 nanometer channel length, mobility isn't all that important. Mm-hmm. But really, the the I mean, one of the key advantages of silicon is that you can do CMOS. You can do both the NFET and the PFET. So gallium arsenide is great for NFETs, but the P, but the PFETs are are not very good. So it's a fabricate. It's 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 yeah. It's, the, the you have comp- one one material system where yes, the complementary aspect of it is really really key. There just really is not another material that can do that. And the silicon silicon germanium could integrate with some of this, or like can you um, can you integrate it with with CMOS on the same uh, device, or would, what's what's what is the promise of these kind of technologies? So in. The way that we were originally envisioning it, and there were there were a lot of people that were looking at this. We want we thought really the best way to get this high mobility in in silicon was to uh, to strain it to, to create a relaxed silicon germanium buffer layer. You would strain the silicon, create tensile strain of the silicon, and then uh, that would be on the surface, and you would be able to enhance the NFET. And theoretically, you're also able to enhance the the, the PFET, the the the, the complementary device as well. Um, it actually turned out that it you could do that, but there were it came with a lot of baggage. It came with a lot of other problems. The silicon germanium underneath was defective; uh, it wasn't perfect. Uh, so, um, so there were a lot of a lot of fabrication problems associated with that. It ultimately turned out that silicon germanium was integrated into CMOS, but it was integrated in a very different way. It was integrated in a way where you would put it um, selectively just in the source and drain context of the um, of the device and it would only be in the PFET in, in, in the whole device and you would create <laughs> um, uh, uniaxial compressive strain in the PFET enhance the PFET mobility and you wouldn't worry so much about the NFET you can do some other things with the NFET so uh, silicon silicon germanium ultimately was integrated into CMOS but in a very different way than we had originally envisioned which indeed like let's say the development of computers um you have to try a lot of things that don't work because it's very hard to predict what will and indeed fabrication is just uh like i mean it's one thing to have something that works uh in a university clean room once and another thing to have something that you put a billion transistors off on a chip, right? right I guess. Yeah, and, and and this particular innovation of the 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 
the uniaxial compressive strain, I think was actually non-obvious. I don't even know if it had ever been theoretically predicted uh, at the, uh, until right up until the time it was implemented in, in production. So it was quite a surprise. Yeah, I, I, so, so indeed, like there's, there, there's this whole world of, of people who, um, uh, 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 like you, who, who work on, like who, who have a deep knowledge of, of uh, sort of conventional um, uh, computer technology, and and then there's indeed this this physics world. So, uh, you uh, how how long did you stay at IBM? I was there for a little over fourteen years. And uh, so then you became a, a professor afterwards, right? Yeah. So I left uh, IBM in 2010 and joined the University of Minnesota. And uh, so these whole this whole basically the the whole development of of quantum uh, uh, technologies. Um, like starts indeed around like the, the idea of making quantum dots in two decks and, and using them uh, uh, as, as qubits. This whole development comes up in the late 90s and, and, and people make the first sort of university level demonstrations on, on gallium arsenide in the early 2000s, I guess. I believe that's the case. Yeah. yeah. So uh, um, indeed, by the time, by, by, by 2010, people have sort of demonstrated uh, single qubits in, in gallium arsenide and are slowly, like, so the quantum field is sort of slowly, um, slowly moving um, from gallium arsenide uh, to silicon for actually not reasons of mobility or um, uh, fabrication, really, but mostly for reasons of, of the nuclear spins. That's that's right, and uh, it's interesting because when I when I originally joined Minnesota, I, I wasn't working on on silicon germanium anymore, but I uh, I certainly was tracking the field, and you know one of the the things that we did in silicon germanium in the early days in the in the strain silicon quantum wells was we we used modulation doping, so we used uh, a phosphorus layer, for instance, to donate electrons into the channel layer, and um, uh, but that ultimately caused lots of problems for the quantum uh, computing uh, quantum computing community because of the charge disorder uh, the, the the random potential fluctuations were just too large um, uh, from that layer and so they ultimately started going to the uh, uh, what I would call like the enhancement mode types of geometries to get rid of that charge disorder yeah I mean well in, indeed so so that's that's I think that's that's one of the key things that you have you have the um, the semiconductor world. And for example, I guess the nuclear spins is something that the semiconductor world doesn't think about very much, right? Like it's almost, it's like an irrelevant thing. That's right. That's right. There's no uh, isotopic purification that's being done, you know, in, yeah. in standard in standard uh, CMOS. Yeah. Like that starts coming in when you take the electron spins and they can see the nuclear spins. And so, so you arrive at, at this problem. And this is what makes silicon better because in gallium arsenide, unfortunately, you cannot isotopically purify a gallium arsenide that is nuclear spin free. That's right. Um, then in silicon, silicon germanium, actually you can get there, which is why some people say it's the vacuum semiconductor, um, because indeed these, these nuclear spins can be, um, can be at least for the most part getting, gotten rid of. And so, so that's sort of why the, the community has, has, has slowly moved there. And, Indeed, a lot of the things, like you said, you worked on on the valley splitting. Uh, it's sort of an in, like an accident of the silicon um, uh, band structure, right? That uh, you you have these uh, uh, valleys. Like it's sort of 
Well, I, my understanding, right, is this is a kind of a big problem, yes. right? Is, is being able to make, uh, you need to be able to split this, this valley degeneracy and you need to be able to maintain it, uh, um, you know, in your, in your quantum dot systems. Yes, because indeed, when you make these quantum dots, you want your electron and your electron has a bunch of quantum numbers. And in gallium arsenide, it doesn't have this valley quantum number, but in silicon it does. And so you need to, well, make this quantum number take one value and not any other. Otherwise, you have this electrons in, in random valleys. That's right. So, and indeed, to engineer this, you have to use things like strain. And that makes things difficult because, I mean, indeed, when you have a heterostructure, you have to control strain. There will be defects because, I mean, strain almost certainly means that your atomic layers have some sort of mismatch. And But indeed, it's about controlling all those things and, 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 and making it work. And so there, there's... Basically, by the time indeed, by the time that you are a professor, there's already people people thinking about these things. So, how did you like what what? Um, so you, you left IBM, you became a professor. What is sort of your your um, uh, uh, main research area at, um, like that you that you started on and and what you're doing now? Because you, yeah, my my current research is is I would say about seventy five percent of it or so is involving two D materials. So I wanted to start working on graphene um, and uh, um, eventually the other 2D semiconductors, um, mostly because, uh, uh, at least with graphene, I just was interested to see what it was good for. Yes. There was a lot of hype about graphene, and, and I, I thought it was a very interesting material, but I think that uh, at least maybe some of the research directions were, were not really looking at what the most promising areas areas of use for it. Uh, and so I just wanted to try to explore and see what we could find that uh, would, you know, that, that graphene could do better than maybe some other, you know, any mm -hmm. other material. Um, so now I, that's not all that quantum related, um, but um, it, it, it certainly was interesting and it allowed me to, uh, you know, learn a completely new field. And it's sort of the two deck in one, in one material. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it certainly are. Yeah, uh, definitely confining electrons and holes to two dimensions for sure. You also uh, you also looked a bit like what, what are the other what are the other two D materials that you have looked at? So uh, we've looked at um, molybdenum disulfide, tungsten disulfide. Um, did some work on black phosphorus, uh, um, even some work on black arsenic. Um, uh, so, so you know, the, the difference being that some of them are more like graphene is not a semiconductor, but I guess a semi-metal, and some of these others are true semiconductors. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All of them have somewhat different properties, and I, I just think it's really interesting to explore a new material. Once again, trying to figure out what its intrinsic properties are, and then how it could be used for a practical device. And like, um, do you like? So and and uh, another like we've already said you have you have several hats you have like a professor where you need to just find good projects for PhD students and 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 be able to you know have have, have good research output and but then on the other hand you you um, uh, are director of the nano facility um, how how did you grow into that role I mean I think it's because of my background in nanofabrication I mean I've uh, I started my Uh, my my work in e experimental electrical engineering, building an electron beam uh, uh, writer, a, an electron beam lithography system. So um, I've just built you know any number of different uh, types of devices uh, and worked with a wide wide range of material systems. So 
um, after the uh, ultimately there was a, a professor who was who had been director of our nano center for about twenty years or so, and he had retired eventually. Uh, and uh, you know, I I feel maybe I was the natural successor just because of my background uh, in, in in so many areas of, of fabrication. And how how is that role? How many like uh, is it very like is there a lot of administrative baggage attached to it? Is it is is it that you get to uh, you know make the big decisions on on what to buy, what to um, how, how is it to run a clean room facility? Well, uh, you got to keep the tools running. You got to make sure that there's DI water and all that sort of stuff. So we have very good staff members that that uh, that do a lot of that. Um, so yeah, things like cooling water pumps in the basement, all these things, air handling, yeah. uh, these things. So you have to have all of that done. And once again, it, you know, we have really, really excellent staff members that, that are, you know, I'm so glad that, uh, they, they make, they can make me look so good. Um, uh, but you know, there's also the, uh, sort of the scientific aspect of it. You know, you want to try to be getting equipment that will support uh, new research areas. And that's maybe where I've, I've started to, to get into quantum a little bit. So, you know, my background obviously is in, is in microelectronics and in, in CMOS and conventional computing. And I guess I kind of saw the, you know, this being the nanocenter director role as an opportunity to think about, you know, how do clean rooms need to reconfigure themselves? You know, do we need to get completely new sets of equipment to support emerging areas like, like quantum computing? And so that's maybe how I've kind of circled back to, to look at you know, to get, get involved in quantum, uh, in, in, once again, a little bit at the periphery. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what is, what is the difference between the clean room needs of a, um, of a quantum lab and sort of a more conventional, uh, classical electronics lab? Well, that's a little bit of what we're trying to figure out. I mean, I, maybe it's possible that there are no differences, but I, I have some suspicion that we do have to, Uh, there might be some specialized tools and techniques that we're going to need. Um, some th things that I can think of would be, uh, you know, being able to control uh, material, um, you know, the, 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 the cleanliness of material is much better. So for instance, obviously you have to deal with things like isotopically pure materials. Uh, in some cases you have to deal with magnetic impurities for, for superconducting devices. Um, um, making ultra clean interfaces. Uh, do you need specialized tools to prepare interfaces? Um, maybe for things like the topological, uh, devices, it's, it's an open question, but I think it's something that we're trying to do, but both in our, um, you know, me personally, but also within our network of the, the, the U S network of nanofabs, this, the, the national nanotechnology coordinated infrastructure. Yeah, just indeed one one of the things that I always wonder in this context is um, I always find that the quantum devices that we make in the end are incredibly primitive, right? Like you have like let's say current quantum dot devices, people try to avoid avoid multilayer fabrication because it include it, it induces more charge noise and more problems. So you mostly have like sometimes you have some dielectric layers if you really need to cross a gate over another. But if you don't really have to do that, you'll, you know, you like in the early devices, you just have like one layer of metal on, uh, uh, let's say, a, a heterostructure. And that's your that's your quantum chip. 
That's exactly right. And and that's that could be where there have to be some new techniques developed. So maybe that dielectric layer that that allows you to do the crossover metallization has to be deposited in a completely different way than we do it now. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it fascinating. Like if you look at conventional computer devices, I mean, you have many, many layers, right? Like, and there's steps of polishing and uh, uh, and 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 uh, and so on, which which are also not really done much in the quantum community. Like, we try to mostly do additive fabrication. Uh, that's right. That's right. I mean, the, the, what we call the back end of the line. Uh, that would be the, all the, the stuff that's after the uh, kind of the transistor level that in, in conventional computing. It's it's kind of a dirty process. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's a question of whether or not you can do that uh, the same way uh, in with, with, with quantum chips or you would have to do it in a completely different way. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the projects I'm involved right with right now, for example, we're looking at um, whether you can uh, replace some resist based fabrication techniques with um uh, uh, with uh, silicon oxide uh, 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 instead, like with hard masks, let's say, and that's that's for example, it's a huge question whether hard masks can uh, be lifted off in a more clean way and leave less residue. Whether you can, you know, whether that way you can get device performance improvements or not. And I, I would say a lot of these questions are not easily answerable. Like, that's right. That's right. And and just when you said the word lift off or lifting off, I mean lift off is not. Yeah. It is not a, a manufacturable process, at least in the silicon world. Exactly. Like this. Uh, so the industry works on a completely different way from the like the, the way that current quantum dot devices, uh, like current quantum computing devices in the semiconductor world are made is very, very different from the way that transistors are being made. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I, I find that an interesting question. And uh, and 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 by the way, you know, that's that's just for the silicon quantum dots. If you talk about um, uh, superconducting uh, qubits or, or trapped ions. There's all sorts of different, completely different fabrication issues that yes. are that, that that come about with that. And yes. So yeah, in, indeed. Uh, and I, I think that um, I think that the U.S. is like it's it's very like having a net like a, a, a national network of clean rooms in the U.S. is a really good idea because. These challenges are re- are very important if you want to scale these technologies. I mean, IBM in house is probably doing a lot at well, certainly doing a lot at the moment to scale uh, superconducting qubits. Um, Intel is trying to carry scaling of of quantum dot qubits to some extent, um, but like you also need you really need an interface between these industrial facilities and um, and the universities and. The, the big clean room centers are probably where a lot of this will eventually happen, right? Yeah, and and I think that at least what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the community together. So you know we have a, a what we call a research community within this NNCI network where we're trying to look at these at these problems. Uh, a couple of years back, we organized a a workshop. Uh, to kind of bring the thought leaders together and 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 discuss these uh, discuss these problems, and we're kind of hoping to to continue that uh, just to keep talking about what are the fabrication issues uh, associated with quantum. And and you're right, we have to bring in uh, academics and, and industry and national lab uh, yeah. uh, thought leaders, and once again, as well as the international community as well. So there's there's a U.S. based collaboration on 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 bringing the U.S. clean rooms together. 
Jülich also here plays a role as a hub for nanofabrication for Aachen, Cologne, uh, uh, Düsseldorf, Bonn, like for the uh, universities around here. And, um, and then there's the network of networks, which is the global quantum leap, right? Yes, that's right. So, yeah, this is a really unique uh, type of project. So it's funded through the National Science Foundation uh, through a, pro uh, a program called ExcelNet, which is accelerating research through international network-to-network -network collaborations. And uh, it's, it's a very unique funding mechanism uh, within the U.S. that really emphasizes international collaborations. Uh, and um, this Excelnet program actually funds uh, international collaborations on a whole variety of projects. I think that there's one that is is looking at the science of bats uh, and then also like uh, ice sheets in, in Greenland. Uh, so a very diverse range of, of topics, but uh, ours is, is really trying to um, uh, link the international community on, on quantum information sciences and particularly to link the, the nanofabrication community Uh, with the, the, the quantum community globally. Yes, and of course, this is a very good idea. I think ML, we, we are really lucky as ML4Q to be, uh, to be partnered up because indeed, so what, what it does is there's opportunities for research exchange. That's right, that's and right. This is, uh, this is why, you're, why, why you're here, as we already mentioned. That's right, that's right. So our, uh, our program, we have a number of different programs that we're running. Uh, we have these structured exchanges, uh, which allow U.S. participants to go to any one of our partner sites uh, individually. That's what we're running uh, this year. So this is for uh, undergraduates. Uh, so we're, we're sending three undergraduates to, uh, to Hervé Teja. Um, and actually, uh, three are, are going to, to NIMS in, in, in Scuba, Japan as well. So we actually have six uh, uh, students uh, th this summer. Um, but we also have uh, kind of what we call uh, research-specific exchanges. So these could be exchanges just between two uh, of our, our partners that know each other. So someone in Aachen knows somebody at the University of Chicago, for instance, and they want to, they've got a project that they would like to work on that requires a, a researcher to to go to one side or the other. And, and, and these are things that we can fund. So we would fund the, not the research itself, but the connection. Exactly. Uh, so how exactly like indeed. So for, for a, a lot of our listeners of this podcast are of course within ML4Q itself. It's not that we have a, 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 a big global audience, but I, I think specifically for people within ML4Q, um, uh, what, what, what should they have in mind? So if you are a postdoc or PhD student and, um, there's an, like your professor, let's say finds an opportunity to work with a colleague in the U S um, what is the kind of procedures that, uh, that are, um, that, that, well, what are the possibilities and what would be the procedure? Right. So they, uh, they can certainly go to our website, uh, uh, which is uh, globalquantumleap.org. I hope I got that right. Uh, and uh, um, the, uh, uh, so, so uh, we certainly have a contact email there. Um, we, we have been posting uh, on occasion uh, specific calls for, for applications for, uh, for these research exchanges. Um, but, but, Literally anybody can contact us at any time if they have an, if they have an idea for a, a collaboration. Um, so um, some of the structured exchanges we're doing on sort of a regular summer schedule, uh, but any of these research-specific exchanges, literally if there's anybody, uh, if they have a colleague in the U.S. Uh, that they would like to collaborate with um, that's involving something involving quantum sciences, 
most likely it's something that we can that we can fund and uh we would um you know just like to reach out to us they can certainly reach out to me uh, at my email address but but also through our uh, um through our website and uh, uh we can tell us what idea you have and then we can talk about how to uh um uh, help to make that exchange happen exactly so that's and i think yeah what, what we can definitely also say is that learning to like the 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 kind of work specifically clean room work um is an arduous process because you have to find what works and most things don't and i think for that the research visits are really good because any clean room will have slightly different machines slightly different procedures and it's absolutely necessary between these clean rooms to to have some exchange to um actually grow because i mean a lot of the time somebody comes from somewhere else with a certain expertise and then really helps to Im- improve uh, local facilities right yeah i think the benefit can come both through through the access to uh some some new piece of equipment um but i also think that the the benefit can come through um, a cultural exchange, just thinking about things differently. You know, sometimes people in different groups just have a very different perspective. They're coming at the problem from a very different angle. And so this idea of, of just seeing a problem from a different perspective is really, is really beneficial. So kind of get out of your bubble a little bit. And uh, I think that's really, really helpful. And once again, particularly for such a difficult problem as, as quantum computing. And, and indeed, the last thing, of course, uh, sometimes you just need a machine <laughs> that somebody else has and i think for a lot of people in your like i would guess that you can probably name some projects where it was really just about finding the capabilities and being well connected sometimes you can make things happen um much quicker than if you had to buy all the things yourself certainly certainly i mean uh you know we're we're dealing with uh, projects that involve very expensive equipment uh, and uh, you know, sometimes those are unique. Uh, there's only maybe one capability within the world. Yeah. Um, uh, but once again, I, I really I, I do want to go back to that that idea exchange. You know, the the being able to just talk to someone that that is seeing a problem from a different perspective. I think it just is extremely valuable. Yes. Uh, and so you know, I think it's a combination. It's a combination of facilities, people, equipment, and ideas. And indeed, for the challenge of scaling quantum computing. Uh, eventually because the way that i mean as we said the way that current quantum computing devices are they are relatively primitive fabrication wise usually few layers avoiding uh, um, a lot of the uh, complicated interconnects 3d integration and so on i mean there's people who move in that direction but cautiously yes uh, because it's 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 a very big commitment um, to move into 3d integration for example yeah and but it's interesting that 3D integration is happening, you know, and and I, I should say that that you know there's a lot of trends in in for instance the CMOS uh, uh, industry that uh, you know is looking promising for I- integration of of uh, uh, you know for quantum. Yes. You know, so there is you know 3D you know, there is 3D integration that's being commercialized. Uh, we are doing things like removing the dopants from our. Uh, from the channel of our of our transistors, and so a lot of the things that that the CMOS industry is doing, um, you know, they are 
um, necessary for for quantum, but I don't think that they're going to be sufficient for quantum. Yes. And I think that that you know there's going to be more innovations that are needed that go beyond what uh, what's currently being envisioned for for the the conventional uh, computing industry. Yeah, and indeed, and I think over the next 10, 20 years, as people move from tens of qubits to hopefully thousands of qubits, uh, um, the fabrication engineering will require a close collaboration with um, with these sort of uh, uh, with with the expertise from from uh, uh, people who have scaled up computers to billions of transistors. Yeah, I think that that's really going to be important. So I think that having that fabrication expertise is part of the of the of the conversation. Uh, once again, at, particularly as we scale up, I think is really going to be important. Then, just I mean, as we as we go maybe towards the end of the podcast, I can still ask some more uh, uh, out there questions. Um, like in this process of managing this um, uh, this scaling up, uh, certainly at some point, you know, like the current smartphone or computer chips they require very dedicated foundries that cost billions and billions of, of euros and uh, are very different from a research clean room how do we like if we manage that transition should labs like yours or or Jülich, how important is it to get industry partners into research uh, environments um, or um, researchers into industry environments I think it's going to be important. It's it's going to be interesting to see how how the uh, how the industry evolves. Um, uh, of course, you know it might also have a little bit to do with where the commercial with the commercial interest lies. You know how much uh, how much money do these fabs and in, in the the startup companies and things like that, or in, in the Googles of the world, how much are they really going to be investing in 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 this technology? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you if you need to have a dedicated quantum, I mean that's that's the thing. If you start a startup and you use a university clean room and you pay for it, you need like some you know you can pay that from from your startup grants and and whatever. But if once at at a certain size of your quantum startup, maybe you need your own clean room. And at that point, the investment becomes a very different, um, you know, the amount of money even for a small clean room is tens of millions of euros. Yeah, I I really think that that in order for this to succeed, it's going to have to be able to use the existing commercial infrastructure. And, you know, there are companies that are supporting some types of uh, uh, you know quantum computing i know that that for instance skywater uh, in in the united states is fabricating uh, these devices for d wave now that's mm-hmm. not so much that's sort of a quantum annealing type of process but they're running a superconducting yeah, uh, process so um, you know I, I i think that you know leveraging the existing infrastructure is really going to be important I, i don't think that you can have Uh, dedicated quantum fabs uh, unless once again <laughs> unless the industry really you know unless there's a lot of money to be made <laughs> ah, another question in your um in your clean like your clean room is also like a research clean room with electron beam lithography mostly that's right and i mean of course the industry works with uh uh, uh with uh optical lithography or ua uh, uv uh, uh lithography and and very advanced mask fabrication which basically is is bad for research because I guess the kind of masks that people use in advanced semiconductor manufacturing is way too expensive 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, most most universities can't even do things like deep UV lithography. Uh, to do extreme UV, UV lithography, it's just absolutely impossible. I think one of the tools might cost, you know, a single tool might cost 50 to $100 million just for the lithography tool. The masks, I just can't even imagine. I don't know how much they cost, but, you know. Yeah, and they are, not, yeah. they are not easily changeable. That's also like, I mean, like, it's not that you buy a mask, a different mask every week. With, well, the e-beam lithography gives you a lot of freedom, I guess. That's right. I mean, I think that if you wanted to have if, if the quantum technology is going to require EUV lithography, uh, there has to probably be a very, very large market behind it yes. in order to in order to sustain that. And um, you know, I don't know that that you know is that, that's, that's going to have to come around. Is there U.S. national labs or clean rooms that do some of this uh, lithography, or is this really something that only is done by by uh, commercial? Uh, N- no, the, the EUV lithography is done in only a very, very small number of places in the world right now. Okay. Yeah. Which, and indeed, like I, I've always thought, like one of the things that's very lucky about the US is that basically um, uh, with companies like Intel, the US is a natural part of the value chain of computers, like a lot of the companies there. But I mean, I mean one of the exceptional things in Europe that we do have is ASML, which is kind of a key uh, company for for the lithography machines. Well, and also you have iMac. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, iMac. And, which and, is and, and iMac is, is you know, there, there's quite a lot of work at, at iMac on, on looking at how to build qubits, you know, in a, in a standard, uh, you know, yeah, indeed, the, the, in a standard fab. That's right. The, the, there's there's a lot of very interesting work coming out of iMac in the last in the last years for superconducting qubits and also quantum dots. I believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so so yeah that's 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 uh that's that's so there, there's things happening in Europe but the US is certainly more um uh, more naturally part of the value chain of computing. Yeah. Uh yeah I mean the the US has a very uh, robust startup uh, uh community as well. So yeah, there's lots of companies that are getting a lot of venture capital money to to look at this so they're driving it I think from the application side. Um, but you know, of course, a lot of the, you know, still a lot of the advanced uh, fabrication is is done in in uh, in Asia as well. So at yes. TSMC, and so uh, you know, uh, some of that might have to get ported over there, or uh, uh, yeah, expanded into the U.S. Uh, with some some newer capabilities. Yeah, so I, I think that that um, we we are looking at a very very interesting time ahead, uh, where where people like you have. Uh, like are in key positions to to help manage uh, um, well at, at least help to um, if if quantum technologies are going to work out help to to make the fabrication side of it happen and transition smoothly into uh, into a, a, a scaling up process. I'm hoping at least that's that's a way that I can contribute. Um, I'm not going to be able to contribute from the physics side, um, but um, you know I, I do think that there's a lot of manufacturing things to to look into that are that are going to be very important. And so once again, I think this is where you know the the community of, of physicists and material scientists and engineers uh, need to be able to come together to be able to solve this 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 grand problem. Yes, and. Indeed, we're we're looking forward to it, and we we uh, with the global quantum leap, we have a new uh, a sort well uh, a way to to collaborate with with partners in the U.S. very nicely. Um, so everybody in ML4Q should now be aware that if you have if you have ideas for collaborations, uh, uh, you know now where to where to write to, and uh, we should really all strive to um, 
use as, as much collaboration to facilitate uh, uh, our, our, our life and, and you know not not wait for for the machine to not not wait for 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 everything to be available here but really see where we can work together exchange ideas exchange techniques and and, and make things happen right i couldn't couldn't agree more so yeah thanks a lot for for being on the on the ml4q podcast and uh, it was really a pleasure to to, to have you Thanks so much for having me.